case you haven't been on energy Twitter in the last month or so, there's a huge controversy going on in California. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is either February 9th or February 10th, depending on who you're talking to. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And I'm Brendan Banfield. And today, across oceans and continents and around the globe, we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar! 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 Oh, that's, All a, right. ten. that's a 10. All right. An, an Australian pirate, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You could you could honestly be that could be the best guest yar we've had thus far. And you you're not even drinking right now, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> just coffee, just coffee. Uh well, welcome ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh we do have a special friend all the way from Australia as our guest today. I'll let Lucas do an introduction in a second, but we just want to say hello to everybody. Uh we want to give a shout out as we always do. Here in the Northeast, we had some ice storms over the weekend and uh even across the river for me in the Hudson Valley People are going on third day and fourth day without power. So, you know, hats off to the utility workers working in really tough conditions right now, uh, you know, taking care and mitigating those problems in the ice storm. So uh, I want to give a shout out to all of them. But with that, I think it's timely to talk utilities and utility technology. I'm going to turn it over to Lucas to introduce our guest for today. Yeah. So we have Brendan, who is the CEO, correct, of Gritsite.ai, yep. who is a pleasure to have on. So Let's start with that. Can you tell us about Gritsite and, and what is Gritsite all about? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, thanks for the intro, guys. So, Gritsite's, yeah, we're a software company based out of um, Wollongong, Australia. So, a city just south of Sydney. So, basically, what we're trying to do is more or less, you know, create this software infrastructure to allow utilities to kind of realize the fully decentralized and decarbonized grid. So, basically, we, we realize, particularly here in Australia, um, there's huge numbers of you know, residential distributed energy resources going on the grid, particularly solar PV. So here in Australia, we have the most solar or rooftop solar per capita in the whole world. So basically one in every four houses here in Australia actually has rooftop solar um, on their buildings. So, you know, even comparing, so in Australia, there's around, I think, 800 watts per capita, so per person worth of solar. And if you compare that with somewhere like the US, I think that's around 230 watts. Even somewhere like California, I think has around, you know, 700 watts of installed capacity per person. So just huge amounts of solar. And basically over the last few years, this is starting to cause kind of congestion on the grid. And we're starting to see some issues that's cropping up just because all of these, you know, renewable energy technologies are becoming unmanaged. So at Gridsite, we kind of got to the, well, during my, um, I guess, research when I was doing my PhD, I was looking into a lot of this stuff and realized that, you know, a lot of the technology and a lot of the, I guess, data sources on the grid already exist to be able to manage this sort of infrastructure, um, but it just wasn't being used. So we kind of got to the idea that, you know, instead of just letting all of this um, renewables go unchecked and, you know, the utilities and regulators start to bring in rules to try and limit some of this stuff, let's just use the data to actually try and improve how this, you know, these technologies are being managed. So we can continue to see that, you know, increase in renewable technologies that we're seeing in the home at the moment. Cool. So you've been working with utilities, right? Correct. Yeah. So our main clients at the moment are the electrical utilities. Yep. So, okay. Give me your frank assessment. How prepared (laughs) are they for the clean energy transition? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it (laughs) it varies from utility to utility. Um, 
So there are a lot of things happening, particularly here in Australia, like a lot of good steps towards kind of being able to manage this huge influx of, you know, as I said, solar and EVs are becoming um, or going to become a, a real challenge as well. Um, the biggest thing that I've found so far is just the pure speed at which these utilities operate. You know, we all, I'm sure, are fully aware, really large organisations, they typically operate really slowly. Uh, but this transition at the moment is just, you know, going at lightning speed. So I think the real challenge here related to preparedness is for them to be able to kind of, you know, increase the speed at which they're kind of adopting these new technologies. Um, because I, I truly believe all of the tech that's required to assist in this transition already exists. As I said, there's already large amounts of data. We use a lot of data from smart meters in people's homes to do our analysis. There's hundreds of thousands of smart meters that are connected to the grid. And there's lots of these other tech companies doing these great things related to how we can manage these assets. It's just the pure speed at which these utilities that are adopting, you know, these new techniques to managing the grid that I think is the real challenge. Cool. Uh, let me, I'm going to throw an audible here and ask a quick question, but yeah, obviously sure. Australia, Australia was in the news a lot about a year and a half ago for the wildfires that took place. And it seems philosophically over the last decade, uh, Australia has definitely gone from uh, a country that has a little more of a reputation for not adopting clean energy or, you know, environmental standards to like rapidly deploying into it. Um, you know, talk a little bit, I, I know Lucas just asked about the mentality of the utilities themselves, but how prepared were the utilities uh, in actually like starting to adapt and starting to engage with, you know, clean energy, like from both an infrastructure logistics standpoint and a technology standpoint? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. So the original kind of uptake, particularly for solar, happened around 10 years ago, so around you know, our kind of 2010, 2012 area. So the government brought in these incentives, um, really large feed-in tariffs, where more or less they were paying um, people who put solar on their roof for whatever they're fed back into the grid, they were paying almost triple what people were actually paying to purchase electricity. So this led to this like really large influx in people installing solar, which has just been on the rise. And what I don't think they foresee was actually the problems that this was causing, particularly around uh, voltage. So when there's really large amounts of solar on the grid, um, particularly in the residential sector, often, you know, people aren't at home to use it. They're all at work. So all this solar is just getting pushed back into the network. And what this can cause is more or less the, um, the network to become unstable. And we can see large voltage rises, which can even cause solar systems to disconnect from the grid due to safety. Um, and I don't think they foresaw this coming. And it was kind of the perfect storm here in Australia because not only do we have the rapid uptake in um, solar, but we also have a really large country that's obviously really spread out. So we have really long you know, distribution lines, which also adds to this problem. And we have a lot of sun. So it was almost like a threefold you know, coming together of these, um, these three different facets, which led to this problem. And I don't think the, um, the utilities were prepared for this you know, challenge that they're currently seeing. So I think in that sense, um, you know, that was probably the biggest shock and it is slowly, I guess, being addressed at the moment, but it is still a massive challenge that we're, um, you know, utilities are facing every day. This sounds a lot like uh, some of the problems that different states in the U.S. are having, not necessarily the entire grid. Uh, I think California mm. is kind of addressing some similar issues right now. Uh, you know, obviously, we know you know your domestic market very well, but if you had to compare and contrast how... Uh, the Australian uh, infrastructure works versus the U.S., and then how GridSite can kind of tailor, you know, your technology and platform for potential more business in the United States. Yeah, definitely. So I think the the biggest difference we'll see between Australia and U.S. is the sheer number of EVs that you guys have over there. I think EVs will probably be 
you know, much more of a significant problem, particularly in the kind of short to immediate term than what we're seeing here in Australia. Um, but for us, they're kind of two problems of the same coin. So with the, the large amounts of solar we have here in Australia, that's more of an over-generation problem. We're seeing too much generation during the middle of the day. In contrast, when you'd be getting, you know, the significant amounts of EVs that we're seeing over in the US, it's going to become an overloading problem where everyone's, you know, plugging into charge in the evening sort of thing. But in terms of how we, I guess, manage this from an electrical engineering standpoint, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So we just need to ensure that the infrastructure is in place to coordinate and manage these technologies to ensure that the grid remains safe and operational, as opposed to just leaving them unchecked where we might start to run into some issues, particularly, you know, saw a lot of things with all the cold weather that was happening um, in the US kind of recently and also last year as well. You know, if we can manage these technologies in a smart way that benefits both the, you know, the consumers and the grid at the same time, I think that's, um, that's the best bet and kind of the commonality yet difference between the US and Australian markets. Cool. Well, Brendan, I'm wondering, how did you get to where you are today? Could you talk a little bit about your career and how it evolved? Yeah, for sure. So started out studying electrical engineering. Um, at the university here in here in Wollongong, actually, and really early on, um, as I was studying, I got to um, basically work with an electrical utility in the capital of Australia, Canberra. So I actually worked for those guys all throughout um, my bachelor's degree. So they're called Evo Energy. So during that time, I got, a, I guess, really a large amount of exposure to how these utilities operate and what the challenges were, particularly around you know these unmanaged DERs or distributed energy resources that are on the grid. Um, so that gave me some really good exposure, I guess, to the, you know, the working worlds of the, the utility space. So following that, finished my, finished my degree, did some traveling, and then um, was offered a PhD from the university. So the PhD involved, I guess, building a kind of smart solar-powered house here in Australia. And then once we built that house, we deconstruct it and take it to another country to compete against uh, universities from all around the world. So it's called the Solar Decathlon. It actually started in the US. Um, yeah, so we built our house here in Australia. Um, so I was a team leader on that, looking after all the renewables and the smart energy system in the home, those sorts of things. Uh, so we built the house here in Australia. We actually built it twice here in Australia because we wanted to do a practice run. And then we took it all the way over to Dubai to compete against um, 15 other teams. So that was a really fun experience. We, um, we managed to come second at that competition, which is really exciting. Cool. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, then we brought the home back here to Australia and basically rebuilt it on a microgrid at the university's campus. And it more or less acted as the test bed for my research. So a lot of my research was looking at um, kind of exactly what we're talking about today. So this microgrid has huge amounts of solar, there's batteries, all these sorts of things. So I was more or less building a control system that could coordinate all these resources within the microgrid to ensure that we're getting the maximum amount of you know, renewables onto the grid. We want to really produce as much renewables as we can, but we're also maintaining and ensuring that the grid remains stable and reliable. So it's kind of at this time, you know, because I was getting data from all these different buildings within the microgrid and I was realizing how much you can actually do with this data, like just pure kind of metering data. And it got my wheels turning that, you know, there's so much I'm able to do with just this small amount of data in this microgrid. Imagine how much more you could do if you actually dove into all the data that these utilities, you know, have access to, but a lot of them they either, you know, don't have the time or don't have the, I guess, infrastructure internally or the people to start, you know, using this data to its full potential. 
Oh, so going further on that, I'm wondering if you could provide some advice. We have a lot of uh, young listeners that want to get into clean tech or trying to, you know, work on their careers, develop their careers. Could you give some advice for others on how to get into clean tech? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, there's a few ones there. So I guess um, you know, one of the easiest ones is obviously just go to university and study something in this space. So I studied um, electrical engineering, uh, which is obviously a good one with all the renewables. But I think another good one to add on that too is to study software engineering at the same time. Yeah. Like more and more as I'm progressing, basically every field of engineering, whether you're a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, whatever it may be, everyone ends up diverging and doing some kind of software engineering at the same time. <laughs> so I unfortunately had to kind of, you know, self teach myself everything. And I could, if I could have gone back, I would have said, do that software engineering too. Um, but yeah, more and more, I think software is going to play an increasingly important part in this transition, um, particularly with, as I said, all this data that we're seeing on the grid. Um, but another one I think is just pick something you're really passionate about. So clean tech's a massive, massive space, you know, large scale renewables, EVs, all this sort of thing. And for me, yeah, the one I was passionate about is all these, you know, renewable energy technologies in people's homes and ensuring people can live, you know, I guess a clean lifestyle and ensure that they can have these technologies and they aren't hindered by any regulation or those sorts of things. So for me, being able to, I guess, focus on that space and, you know, tailor my PhD towards it and then subsequently um, found GridSight to kind of assist with that problem. I think that's a real, I guess, benefit and it'll really assist with the longevity of a career if you're doing something you're really, really passionate about. You know, Brendan, I have to ask this because uh, when you were telling me about your the business model of GridSight, it's almost a little bit of a thankless job because I feel that your definition of success is creating this great amount of stability in the grid to allow for more renewables. And when there's stability, people don't necessarily recognize that there's stability because they kind of get <laughs> granted to get used to it. So yeah. how do you judge success? And more importantly, how do your customers know that you are achieving success? Like what are the, you know, do they have an understanding of the metrics that you're going to present to them after, you know, implementing your system into the grid? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And you're exactly right. So the, Basically, the biggest way these um, problems are being managed at the moment here in Australia is that um, whenever there's a large amount of solar in the area, often someone will open up their app and notice that, hey, my solar hasn't been operating correctly for the last month. What's going on? They'll ring up the the utility, say, hey, this is going on. The utility will then send a truck out to put some monitoring equipment on the network. They'll wait a week. They'll take it off. They'll bring it back. Someone will open it up in Excel. They'll analyze it. If there's then a problem, they might send a truck back out to maybe adjust the transformer. And this takes weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, So that's kind of the driving force behind a lot of this managing of small-scale renewables in Australia is purely through customer complaints. Uh, So for us, what we want to do is basically use all this data to surface the areas where these challenges either are occurring or are going to occur really quickly so that more or less these utilities can go out and start mitigating these problems in a much more proactive manner as opposed to reactive so for us you know a key metric that we've kind of um, discussed with our utilities is that yeah you can take a much more targeted approach to to managing these customers and make sure those customers are happy so we should be able to see those customer complaints which has been on an exponential rise for the last few years start to dip Um, so yeah that's one kind of key metric that we should see hopefully in the um in the future And, and moreover they shouldn't have to, you know, with all that data there, they shouldn't have to, you know, send monitoring equipment out in the network and all that added cost of, 
you know, sending field workers out. We, we can do all that stuff in-house purely with the data that's, that's available to us. Uh, that's really cool. I don't know, Lucas, if you were going to pull up the website for GridSite, uh, yeah. if you have it. So while he's doing that, I have to ask a question, Brendan, given that the Olympics are taking place right now, you mentioned that you came in second place in Dubai. Please tell us that it was the Americans that came in first place and got the gold medal. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but it, it was, yeah. It was Virginia Tech. <laughs> oh, Virginia Tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. West Virginia. Yeah. Well, we won't start screaming USA, USA like <laughs> American Americans tend to do. But uh, well, that I mean, honestly, that's a win-win for uh, for you guys and for everyone to have that type of solar technology and and to get you know a silver medal on that. But yeah, thank, uh, you. So, thank you. So, Brandon, what's your website? Yeah, so my website's up on up on the page. It's www.gridsite.ai. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's contact details there. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to send us an email, and we'd be happy to. Happy to have a chat. So what's your, uh, what's your expansion plans uh, uh, internationally? Uh, <laughs> obviously, you're growing in Australia, but are, you know, are we going to see GridSite coming in the U.S. shores anytime soon? Yeah, we really hope so. So we're already working with some um, utilities in New Zealand as well, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, we've definitely got plans to, to head over to the U.S. Obviously, you know, working in a place like Hawaii, where they've got really large amounts of solar, California as well, we think make perfect sense. So Hopefully within the next year or two, you see, you know, Gridsite making its way over your side and we can, um, yeah, work on some really exciting projects over there as well. Oh, that's yeah, fantastic. That's, that's really funny because California actually introduced a residential solar mandate on new residential buildings. And I actually wrote an article critical of that for precisely the reasons you brought up, right? So, yeah, funnily really enough, cool. that case study you're looking at right there, we were looking at some suburbs that had mandated 100 percent solar um yep. so yeah excellent for the consumers but it was causing all kind of havoc on the grid so that was an, a really interesting one to dive into that obviously would be really applicable to somewhere like california but then you have to have grid site right <laughs> absolutely you've got to have grid site to help that's right but i almost wondered you mentioned the consumers in australia that were putting solar on their roof but in a way sometimes they must have felt like they were getting hosed because if they're promised that they're going to put so much electricity back into the grid and get a benefit from it, but then they had to shut it down because there was too much entering at the same time, then they're not getting probably the returns that they were told they were going to get because the sales guy is selling one unit to that house and not thinking about the whole geography of that neighborhood or that grid, right? That's exactly correct here. And that's one of the biggest issues. And and the worst thing is some, some consumers get hit a lot harder than others. So it's more or less, usually the, um, the consumers who are all the way up the edge of the network, they get hit the hardest. So, you know, your neighbor that's up the road right next to the transformer, their solar system might operate perfectly, no worries, but you're all the way down the other end of the street at the um, the edge of the network. And that's where all the problems are starting to crop up. So it's this real kind of, uh, I guess, discrepancy between fairness, really. And it's, it's a big problem that's actually starting to be looked at. How can we um, ensure fairness between all these different consumers with these similar technologies that one, you know, one customer isn't getting, you know, loss on their investment compared to the others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's fascinating. This is a great, these are the technologies that we really need to get to where our goals are as, you know, a country like Australia, a country like the United States, but globally it's at, yeah. it's kind of the bridge technologies, if you will, that's taking an idea and putting it with today's infrastructure and making sure it's done smoothly. So Hats off to you for coming up with this really great idea. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. 
you know, as we wrap up, I first got another thing I have to tell you, Brandon, I'm not sure if I'm going to win points with you or not, but I actually have a car that was made in Australia. Really? Yeah. I drive the American version of the Holden Commodore. Oh, um, wow. But you know, it's, it's a complete, it's a complete gas hog. I'll be the first. Yeah. It's my, yeah. it's my summer weekend driver only, but I absolutely love that car. So, um, Somewhere around here, I have a Holden racing jacket. I was going to put it on. Oh, that is excellent. I don't think I've ever met someone from the U.S. who drives, as we would call it here, a commie. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the uh, Pontiac version called G8, and then Chevy made a version. But uh, that car is just, you know, it's the only relationship my wife is jealous of. with my. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic automobile, and it's a, it really is indicative of Australian engineering. So Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Well, we have the website. It was gridsite.ai, I believe. Yep, correct. Brendan, this was fantastic. We really appreciate having you on. Uh, We know you had to get up a little bit early. Uh, You volunteered not to do a beer of the week with us because it's 8 (laughs) a.m. You got to go to work. But uh, appreciate having you on. And we hope to have you on in the future, maybe when you're uh, launching your U.S. product. Definitely. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And we're back. Uh, Lucas, great find with Brendan. I thought he was a fantastic guest and uh, what a great technology. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, everybody's always talking about, oh, data this, data the new oil, data, data, data. And it's like, well, what are you going to do with it? And so it's really cool to see him take all this data and, and actually get value out of it. So it's really cool to see. I love the fact that he may be entering America through you know, the island economies and their uh, kind of specific grid needs given that's a closed system like Hawaii and uh, I think you mentioned uh, well California but maybe even he didn't mention Puerto Rico but they could probably use it as well yeah and Vermont has a lot of solar too I think so yeah there's lots of options New York Massachusetts right so yeah that'd be cool to see some international it all ties together I just love this. Okay, we'll talk more about it in my articles. <laughs> I, I love you saying it all ties together because I'm in such an Olympic mood with the Olympics going on. International. <laughs> I'm wearing my Eastern European, you know, mafia tracksuit right now. <laughs> Feeling really good. By the way, I'm Eastern European heritage, so I'm allowed to say that. Uh, no, you know, I so my articles, and I think I'm going first this time. Uh-huh. My articles have an, uh, an Olympic international team. I've been trying to find stuff from around the world. We're going to start off with a good old USA, which, by the way, Virginia Tech, hats off. You beat the Australians in this uh, solar <laughs> home competition. Love it. So going back home here, the Youngstown Business Journal, great publication from February 4th. My good friend Dan O'Brien writes a story. Scroll down a little bit if you can. There we go. EPA takes issue with USPS plan for next generation vehicles this is just absolutely horrible so the u.s postal service under the last administration uh maybe at the very beginning of the Biden administration i can't remember timing they finally came out with their plan for replacing their age fleet of delivery vehicles and believe it or not they came out with the companies called oshkosh they're the ones the main contractor and 90 percent of the new vehicles are going to be internal combustion engine and only 10% are going to be battery electric vehicles. (laughs) And so this article says the U S EPA calls this seriously deficient and said that this contract needs to be opened up and be reevaluated because we're talking here about, you know, 
these are going to be vehicles that are going to be on the road 20, 30 years, uh, like the existing fleet. You know, the EPA pointed out that competitors such as FedEx plan to have a fully committed electrified fleet by 2040. UPS plans on doing the same thing by 2050. So it's time for this contract to be reopened. And I think there's a solution here. Shameless plug, but also if you go on change.org and we're going to post this in our links, <laughs> yours truly has come up with a petition for the U.S. Post Office to go all hybrid or electric in its new fleet instead of this 90-10 BS. Uh, this absolutely has to change. I don't think that the fleet has to be 100% battery electric. We know that there's, you know, battery material supply chain issues. Uh, We know there has to be some flexibility. So for me, I think the solution is plug in electric hybrids for most of their fleet. The range of the battery should be just slightly above what the average range of an average delivery vehicle makes on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then you have a gasoline backup, just like a Chevy Volt to kick in for the remaining part. And sometimes, you know, Trucks are a little heavier on certain days. They may need a little bit more power. They may drain the battery faster. So I'm okay with plug-in electric hybrids because it's a proven technology. It's still going to use the battery. It's going to reduce gasoline usage. And then have maybe 25% of the fleet be full-on BEV. But we cannot have 90% conventional uh, gasoline engines. So please, here's the link. is going to be on on all our um, podcast websites. It's going to be on YouTube. Please sign this petition because you know what? The Pirates of Clean Tech followers can make a stand, and we're going to make a stand, and we're going to stand up for what's right and what's green. Yeah, so we have you have 16 signatures already. Mine is in here. Uh, let's get to 100. That would be awesome. Uh, let's get to 10,000. I'd like to see this at 10,000. I think we need to get this to 10,000. So let's get to 1,000 yeah. by the end of the week, and then let's get it You know, from there and hopefully snowballs. Because not only do we want you to sign it, we want you to share it on your social media because we can actually take a stand and we can do something that's right. And all of us can have a participation in this. We're going to make sure the post office, postmaster general gets this. So, yeah. So you can see on my LinkedIn too, I was having a discussion with somebody about um, electric school buses, which also are perfect, perfect application for EV. So I'd like to see that too. Yeah. You know, and I would, same thing, you know, with the school buses, uh, I would be okay with maybe some sort of hybrid solution, right. At least for a part of the fleet. Um, You know, propane, everyone was talking about propane school buses two years ago. Why couldn't you do a propane electric hybrid? Yeah. Well, then you get the range and the EV for the everyday use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's just great. You know, and if it kicks on to the gasoline burning engine, it is slightly cleaner than regular gasoline. So. Oh, propane. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now this one is the Esprit de Corps of International Cooperation, which is very similar to why the Olympic Games exist. Right. I love this article. This is out of the Jewish News Syndicate. Uh, I don't know if we have a date on it, but New York launches contest for Israeli startups to tackle clean energy challenge. And it's going to focus on next generation of electric vehicle charging, artificial intelligence, and energy storage. I don't know. Oh, this is from uh, February 9th. I don't know if many of you know about Israel and about what incredible technology comes out of there. And effectively, the story comes down to this. During the end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall came down and there were so many Russian Jews who decided that um, uh, the move back to the homeland to Israel, the Israeli government was so smart. They recognized it had all this talent, all these PhDs coming to their country, and they needed to take advantage of this intellectual firepower. So they created this incredible system of incubators throughout the whole entire country. And since then, the burgeoning technology that comes out of Israel is just incredible. 
So uh, it's really cool that New York has signed this agreement, uh, you know, with Israel, with Israel, with Israeli technology companies to, to kind of have this incubation. Um, I'm happy to say that in the Middle East, Israel is now selling their products to neighbors that they probably would not have sold to 10 years ago. So I think, you know, sometimes technology and commerce helps break down barriers and borders. And I'm really happy that New York State is kind of taking advantage of a great relationship that already exists by bringing more clean energy technology. You know, we just heard about what GridSmart can do, how it can be a bridge from new technology, renewable energy to existing infrastructure. This agreement, I think, will do something very similar. Yeah, this is great. And I have an article also on uh, international cooperation for clean energy uh, that's right in our backyard here in New York. So uh, this is great to see, you know, any kind of uh, incentives or encouragement for innovation is always welcome and anything that helps the the clean energy transition I'm for. Cool. Very cool. So um, this is, you know, great international story again. On to our next international story. Oh, boy. Yes, the financial uh, through msn.com. Uh, India's renewable energy sector can employ 1 million people by 2030. Uh, this was a study recently conducted. I actually sought this out because, you know, when, in our searching for international news on clean energy, the reality is we don't hear that much coming from India. So I decided to take it upon myself last week to do a little bit of searching. I did some Google searching, and this was the article du jour that popped up about a week ago. So you know, a million jobs in India sounds like a lot, but as a percentage of the population, <laughs> it may not be. But what I do like about this is there is definitely a focus on next generation grid infrastructure, green energy, both solar, you know, hydro, everything. Um, there seems to be a coordinated plan led by the government. You know, I think many people know that Indian life, if you will, is based on a very decentralized uh, government, you know, where like the the states and, and territories, all provinces all kind of have their own different mandates and maybe there's not as much power to central government as there should be. I think that's changing with regards to having a green energy plan. So uh, in you know, great stat here in 21, uh, fiscal 21, majority of new workers employed were, you know, I think they added for about 1.4 gigawatts of new capacity. Uh, you know, so far 78,000 people have been trained under certain training programs between 2015 and 2017 to improve the availability of skilled workers for clean energy projects. Those are the fundamentals. Those are the things that don't make the headlines, but they need to get done. You need to have a skilled workforce in order for the grid to be uh, transitioning over to green. So I just think that this is a really good story because it really shows the seriousness of Indian government at the federal level and also the decentralized levels to uh, put the grid to work and to turn it green. Yep. So, yeah, these are all the same things we've been harping on, right, for years now. So it's great to see. Yeah, I just wish they would have put a zero behind this one, like 10 million would have been more appropriate, right? So, I don't know. Uh, we'll you, know you know, that's actually a really good point, because, again, India is one of the major carbon emitters in the, in the globe. Uh, yeah. We're starting to see studies that are coming out. Maybe we'll talk about it more next episode. But I think BBC had a story a couple of days ago that, you know, the major corporates in, in throughout the world are not doing enough uh, to get us to our climate goals. And so that's on the corporate side. On the countryside, we're also not doing enough. And so, you know, India needs to step up. Maybe a grid site needs to make its way to India in order to help the existing grid. But these are the things that have to get done and have to be essential. So 
happy to um, happy to see this progress on India, but I think more needs to come. You're absolutely right, Lucas. Yeah, the, I mean the way the amount they're growing, right? They they need clean energy fast now. So, yep. Uh, and then I think this is my last story. Uh, this is on Yahoo Finance, February third. The government of Canada invests in clean technology to support sustainable farming practices. You know, we just I, on on Pirates of Clean Tech, we don't talk too much about sustainable ag. But I also think that this is one of those hidden gems that we need to be addressing. I think there's more emissions from, you know, farms and farming tech. There's more um, sometimes release inadvertently of, uh, you know, chemicals from fertilizers into water streams, et cetera. So, you know, the farming industry is so important for us to have sustainable uh, methodologies being put in place, especially as population increases. We need to be smarter about how we're making food. So I was just really happy to see that the minister of of agriculture and agri-food and now it's the first wave of 60 projects under the agricultural clean technology program uh it's only 18 million dollars but uh farms and ag businesses will have access to the technology for incubation and you know putting into their own system so another good story uh you know this talks about maybe a little bit more detail about how it's broken up uh province to province again really good 18 million dollars is probably a drop in the bucket so we'd like to see more out of that. But I think we just wanted to acknowledge our friends to the north for, you know, talking more and more about fostering uh, clean food. Because, you know, again, it's another thing that needs to be taken care of. I yeah, this is great. I know, I know uh, Canada has been engaged in a lot of clean energy projects. Uh, it's great to see them working at the intersection here between agricultural and clean energy I would really like to see this money have a huge impact. That would be awesome. So it's great to see. And you know, I'd see a more clarity between the U.S. and Canada as well. Um, you know, especially at ag tech, because I think a lot of geographic territories between the northern U.S. and southern Canadian border, uh, there's probably a lot of similarities. And so, spreading wealth and spreading technology just makes sense. Yeah, they're focused on green energy, energy efficiency, precision agriculture, and the bioeconomy. That'd be good to see. I, you know, bio, what, I was just saying, biofuels are not getting enough attention, in my opinion. We need to have a guest at some point talking about urban ag as well. I think urban ag is really yeah. fantastic. And uh, uh, I think so many cities in the United States, especially like food desert cities, are benefiting from urban ag. So let's, uh, let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. That's it. All done. I'm handing over. I'm, I'm handing the torch over. Okay. I'm hopefully Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hopefully going to bring some controversial subjects here. So this should be juicy. Uh, so I'll skip over here in case you haven't been on energy Twitter in the last month or so. There's a huge controversy going on in California. They're trying to basically tank net energy uh, metering tariff which is just like what Brendan was talking about. It's a very rich feed-in tariff where the utility pays you basically three times what they should for the electricity that's produced by solar panels on your roof. Uh, and so they have a order to basically you know, cut that down to one instead of three. And so you'd be getting pennies. And now people who installed these expensive solar panel systems on their roofs are not going to be able to recoup costs and they are up in arms. A lot of uh, industry participants are up in arms. It was in a public review period. That review period has been deferred until February 10th. 
So if you are not happy about this, I invite you to let the CPUC know all about it. This is, I mean, this plays right in with what we were talking about with Brandon. Like if you put solar panels way out on the grid on the edge and utilities don't have a way to manage them and they go cause problems on the grid, but for some reason we're paying them a huge premium for the energy, you know, this can't continue. So there has to be some give here. It doesn't necessarily make sense to drop these people and cut their payments by a third overnight, but something has to be done. So this has been a long going argument. The fight is still going on. So uh, yeah, I wanted to bring this up. What a, For me, it's what a conundrum. And I think this is a, a situation where California early on was probably so hot and heavy to have distributed rooftop solar that they put in this outlandish, you know, pricing that the utilities are forced to take at three times the rate. And now, if you think about it, these systems that are going on rooftops should be cheaper than what happened five years ago because the cost of the solar is is cheaper, the panels themselves. Well, right. So there should be some rationing, if you will, kind of like rationalization of the pricing, meaning California, you know, it should be cheaper to put that rooftop system up versus five years ago. And as a result of that, your break even shouldn't move that much, even if you're only getting one time the the retail amount that you were putting into the grid versus others that put in it three times. So California, I think they shot themselves in the foot by having this exorbitant pricing. They hurt the utilities. Uh, You know, they benefited consumers short term. So maybe there's some sort of tax break additionally that can be given to people who are eating a higher price and having a higher, you know, break-even cost. But, you know, given home price appreciation, everything in California, I don't think people are going to lose out that much. So there should be a compromise in there to make this better. Yeah, and so there's some parts in here that make it a little easier to accept. So they're going to guarantee a 10-year payback period if you had energy storage. They're going to give you a 15-year grandfathering, right? So, for example, if you had your system for 10 years already, you would still get the old rate for five years. Hopefully that's enough time to pay back uh, the cost of your your solar panels, you know, but there is an additional grid participation charge. So, you know, the, if you go, if you have to go install smart switches and, you know, hire a grid site to help you manage all this power flow all over the place, that costs money. So that's where this charge is coming from. It's just the reality of the situation. I don't like it either, but I, I think, you make a good point. We should have been incrementally chipping at this for a decade now, instead of avoiding the problem and continuing with this, you know, amazing rate that we gave to these people. So, yeah, by the way, we should mention uh, Lucas nor I are investors in GridSight because we keep pushing the product as a solution. We just think it's a great technology and it's that type of technology that needs to get implemented to smooth out these issues. So, yeah. Okay. No shameless plugging on our part. Okay, so I'm going to get even more controversial now because this has been going on for about a month now, so we're bringing it up. But I saw a report come out, a 20-year uh, draft transmission outlook for California. This is from the California ISO. They operate the uh, wholesale grid there, January 31st, 22. It's a draft, okay, by the way. And, you know, I started reading this and... They have some huge transmission goals. I'll bring you down in here. Huge, huge plans for large, large transmission projects that need to be uh, installed. 
And so here's the graph and I'll try and zoom in on this so we can see this. And you'll notice that uh, a lot of their planning has to do with uh, offshore wind. They don't have a lot of onshore wind planned and a lot of uh, solar, utility scale solar. So 30 gigawatts of solar, five gigawatts of solar, is five gigawatts of geothermal, number 10 gigawatts of solar. So what I'm seeing here is utility scale solar and wind installations and utility scale transmission lines being proposed at the same time they're reducing incentives on rooftop solar. And so I'm just putting it out there. It looks like <laughs> it looks like utility planners are getting a big headache from residential solar and managing all those issues. And they're saying, forget it. We're just going to do utility scale and keep the grid as it is. And power is going to flow from utility scale, solar and wind down through the grid, just like it does now. And we're going to let the utilities manage all this. That's what this looks like to me. Right. I don't know. Eric, what do you think? Yeah. While you were saying that, I'm contemplating whether I agree with that philosophy or not, because <laughs> I think there is a lot of efficiency from utility scale power generation. Right. And if you put it with the right grid, and again, I'm not an investor in utilities or anything like that, I'm truly thinking about what is most efficient, because it goes back to the bigger picture premise. <laughs> For us to get to where we need to on Paris Climate Accord, we need to spend a lot of money and so we have to be smart with every dollar. And for me, utility scale power generation that's green makes more sense that way when I'm looking at the big picture overall. So right. I think I'm okay with this. Maybe they need to be more transparent to consumers. About <laughs> God forbid we have transparency in our government and in our no. quasi-government entities. But, but I think they should, you know, let's pick a winner maybe and just run with it. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, utility scale benefits utilities, it benefits uh, ISO, it, it benefits the existing players, right? Um, the ISO is supposed to be independent. So, I mean, I agree with what you said. I mean, these utility scale investments have a better, you know, economies of scale and you get all the management of the ISOs and the planners and the utility planners. You get all that with it too, right? So you have professionals managing all this so there is there are, there are some benefits to utility scale clean energy in my opinion. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, the other thing is, you know, rooftop solar makes sense for me somewhere like Cyprus, where there's not a lot of land for big solar farms, big wind farms. Even though Cyprus is an island, you can have a lot of offshore wind. California has a lot of room. You know, even though they're large, there is some population density in urban centers. They've got a lot of room for these large projects and. I think I think this is the way to go, quite honestly. Yeah. So anyhow, I, I don't know. When I saw these two things, I just made a connection between them and I'm like, oh, look at that. Somebody some it registered in somebody's head that we should not be doing rooftop solar. We should be doing utility scale solar. Uh so we'll see how this battle plays out. Uh, it's gonna happen in policy meetings, right? So yeah, we'll see how that plays out. There is one X factor, though, and that is the resiliency factor, because California right now, their grid keeps going down with wildfires, occasional mudslide. Mm. 
So people want to have rooftop with a battery for them that not not to be green per se, but to make sure they have power at their house. So if this transmission line program, it really has to improve the resiliency of the entire grid in order for consumers to have appropriate buy-in, in my opinion. Yeah, utilities don't have the best PR in California right now, right? They do not. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Another uh, interesting article. This is from the Gotham Gazette, written by our friend Carolyn Kassane, who's been a guest on here, February 3rd. Check this out. Super cool. To keep the lights on in New York City, look to renewable energy. We love to see uh, Carolyn talk about clean energy. So in case you don't know, there were two major uh, transmission lines that were approved in New York State recently for installation. One is the old Champlain Hudson Power Express a 339-mile buried transmission line that will go uh, from Quebec under Lake Champlain and then cut over to the Hudson River and then go down the Hudson River, you know, so there's a little little less nimbyism because it'll be hidden uh, underwater. And so it's been approved and it's going in. I guess there's a public comment period that's coming up uh, pretty shortly. Oh, it it was yesterday, February 7th, or two days ago. So shoot, we should have got this on earlier. But anyhow, uh, we also had a, I, <laughs> we also had kind of a similar debate on LinkedIn about this. That um, some people have actually in New York have been opposed to this line, with the argument that we should be incentivizing clean energy development in New York State and not taking it in from another country, taking it in from Quebec, et cetera, et cetera. And her card of my argument kind of here, which I really like, is that it it has geopolitical value, right? That if we are tied economically with Canada, then, you know, we're less likely to, you know, pick a fight with Canada, right? Or go to war with Canada or something like that, because our, our futures and our economies are intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's kind of the, the geopolitical argument here. So... Really interesting to see this, and it really got me thinking about the implications, the broader implications of a clean energy transition, and how multi-tentacled things are going to get, and where I think we're going to see more of this come up as the clean energy transition moves. This is maybe some of the messiness I was talking about with the middle, middle transition period. So uh, yeah, thanks, Carolyn, for bringing this up. It's a really cool article. Check it out. So I have to laugh because God's truth, my brother yesterday sent me a YouTube clip of one of our favorite scenes of the TV show Family Ties when we were kids. <laughs> Alex B. Keaton and his two buddies had these three girls convinced they were all Air Force lieutenants and they were invading Canada the next day. <laughs> and then Alex's mother shows up at the bar and everything goes kaput. I kid you not, we're going to put the link with our episodes. Um, I, look, I think Carolyn's point is, is dead on about the geopolitical positive impact from this. But I also think there's one other point to consider. When we're talking about Quebec and hydropower, we're not talking about spending a ton of capital building out something. This is an right. abundance of hydropower that already exists. Right. Quebec doesn't know what to do with all the power they're generating. In fact, they were trying to bring crypto miners in at ridiculously cheap prices because they had the electricity for something. And so, like, for me, again, it goes back to resource allocation. If they've got the hydropower and they don't have the population density uh, and need for it, why wouldn't we run a line across the, you know, across the border and bring it to New York City? So 
I think it's absolutely a great move. It's not like New York is not focusing on its own offshore wind or solar farms or other initiatives. They're all in for that. Um, right. I live, I live right on the Hudson River, and I can't wait to start seeing wind turbine blades come down on barges that are being put together in Albany. Correct. So this is great. I think it's a great story. And, you know, thank you, Carolyn, fellow pirate, for bringing it to light. Yeah, she does talk about this, too, that, you know, it's in case people didn't know, Quebec does have a ton of hydropower. It's zero carbon energy, and it can be used to balance with the solar we have and with the wind we have. You know, when the wind doesn't blow and when the sun doesn't shine, we'll be able to use uh, Canadian uh, hydropower. So, yeah. Yeah, and I would add one other thing. Uh, you know, if you haven't, if you're not following Carolyn Cassane on LinkedIn, please do so. She said some great articles recently about some of the turmoil in Central Asia and, you know, geopolitical impacts associated with, you know, from that turmoil, but also, you know, impacting on the energy side, but also just the, the humanitarian and political side. Yep, which she is an expert in, and she's very active on LinkedIn. So yeah, check her out, follow her, connect with her if you know her. Wow, we covered a lot of ground here in a very quick time. Uh, great find with picking Brendan as our guest, Lucas. So you know, just another great one. We're, yep. we're having some we're having some great guests uh, on this season, and we hope to keep that up. Yeah, we we are going to keep it up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we are so excited about our guests. We forgot to do our disclaimer at the beginning disclaimer, of the show, but yeah. obviously. Views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I are those of ourselves, not any organizations we are affiliated with. And any public company we talk about, we are not making a recommendation one way or the other about any underlying public securities that you may be able to purchase or sell. So please do your homework. Please call, consult with a registered investment professional and uh, don't listen to us for any advice that way. And you can also find us on YouTube if you want to follow along the articles with us. Uh, you search for Pirates of Clean Tech and you click subscribe and then there's a little alarm bell and that'll notify you when our latest video is out, which you want to get right away. Uh, you can also find us on your favorite podcast venue, search for Pirates of Clean Tech and you'll find us. I think a lot of people watch us on Apple Podcasts. We're on about a dozen podcast sites. So you can find us where you like to listen to podcasts. You know, um, I tell you what, uh, one thing I've noticed is that there's so much going on in clean tech and, and clean energy policy that we're not covering everything. Yeah. So we hope that everyone here is also using us as a springboard for your own research and your own following. We try to cover as much as we can. We try to give you a flavor for what's going on, but there is a lot out there. So if any of you have suggestions on areas we're not covering and you'd like yeah. us to, find us on our social media and reach out to us. Yeah, that'd be great. We, we, love, we love when our listeners get hold of us. Uh, we take their advice. Hopefully one of you will tell me to get a haircut in the next week or two, and I'm going to do that. <laughs> so with that, uh, thank you, everybody. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And together we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yeah. <laughs>